We have been looking at Isaiah chapter 9, verses uh, 2 through 7 for the past three weeks now. This week, the previous two weeks, we'll be looking at it again next week. And what we're doing is we are looking at the, uh, the names of Christ that it gives in verse 6. So if you have your Bibles there, open up to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, where it says, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And so we have this idea that we have this world in in darkness. We have this world of evil, of dysfunction, of hopelessness. And and it's shrouded in deep darkness where we can say there is no hope. There is no life. There is no There is nothing, and that weighs on us. But then in Isaiah chapter 9, it says that there is a light shining in the darkness, and a child is going to be coming, and a child is going to be born, and this child is going to do these amazing things. We can see what he's going to do in verses 3 through 5. This child is going to enlarge a nation. The people inside the nation are going to have an increase of joy, There's going to be freedom brought to those who are oppressed. There's going to be a defeat of the enemies because of this child. And it says this child has the government on his shoulders. He is the ruler. He is the monarch. He is the king. And what these four different names, a wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, the prince of peace, what these names are doing is it's describing who this king is going to be and what he is like. So two weeks ago, we looked at the name that Jesus, the coming king, is going to be a wonderful counselor, that he always knows the right thing to do. He is all-knowing. He is all-wise. Imagine a ruler of a kingdom, a government who always knows what is right and good, and he knows how to bring about what is right and good to his people. He's a wonderful counselor. Then last week, Lucas brought the word to us last week, and he talked about how Jesus is a mighty God. And he parsed that word in the Hebrew, the mighty God. It's this idea that God is holy, that he is a moral God, and that he is a God who will bring judgment. This is the thing about peace. Like it's, it, we cannot have peace without justice. We cannot, we cannot live in a world and, and, and be filled with joy and, and full of hope and live in the kingdom of God and there still be wickedness in the world. And so this mighty God aspect of Jesus is that Jesus is going to be coming to judge the world. And if the mighty God term points to Jesus's morality and his holiness and his judgment, what about this next phrase? That Jesus is also gonna be this eternal father. Now, if you're like me, I hear that Jesus the Son is the eternal Father. And it's like, man, if, if the, the doctrine of the Trinity wasn't confusing enough, they throw this at us, all right? So Jesus, we call the Son of God, yet here in Isaiah chapter 9, he is called the eternal Father. How is the Son going to be the Father? And it gets a little confusing. So, so I thought what we'd do real quick before we jump into uh, the, this idea of eternal fathers, take a look at that question how can the son be the eternal father? And so to do that, 
whenever I have questions on, on, on faith and doctrine, oftentimes what I don't go is I don't go to the big theology books, but oftentimes one of my first steps is I go to what we call catechisms and confessions of faith. Uh, these summaries of doctrine, these summaries of, of how doctrine was taught to the people of God. This is a Baptist catechism where it's talking about who God is. And it says, what is God? And the Baptist catechism answers and says, God is a spirit. He is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being. He is wisdom, power, and holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So what is God? God is a spirit. He is not a body like man. And he has all of these eternal attributes about him. And then we have that second question. Are there more gods than one? How many gods are actually out there in the world? And he answers the question, there is but one only, the living and true God. We have the God of the Bible and all the other gods out there are what we call false gods. They don't exist. They're not, they're not real. But then he gets into this idea of what we call as Christians the Trinity. How many persons are there in the Godhead? And the answer is there are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, these three are one God, the same in essence, equal in power and in glory. So what we believe as Christians is that there is only one God. The most famous verse in the Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one God. How many gods are there? There's just one. But this God has revealed himself in scripture to, of having three persons. We have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three persons of the Godhead constitute one God. And it gets even more complex because they are uh, distinct, but they're also together. So think about Jesus' baptism. In Jesus' baptism, Jesus went in the water to be baptized by John the Baptist. So where was God the Son? He, he, he was in the water. And then if you remember... In the same text, it says that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a what? Like a dove. And then at the same time, you have the heavens open up and God speaks and says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So in that picture of Jesus's baptism, we see the one God, this one God that we believe in, but we see him in three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not three gods, it's one God, but that one God has three persons. So whenever we look at Isaiah chapter 9 and says that Jesus will be called eternal Father, is it confusing Father and Son here? I don't think so. And this is why. This is why. Look at what the author of Hebrews says about Jesus. It says, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So God the Father has spoken to us through his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Do you, do you see what it says about Jesus? 
that Jesus is the exact expression of his nature. So much so that in John chapter 14, when Philip goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, show us the Father. Jesus says to Philip, like, Philip, have you not been with me all these years? Have you not, have you not seen me and heard me? He's like, if, if you have seen me, you've, you've seen the Father. But the, the Father and I are, are one. So whenever the book of Isaiah chapter 9 says that Jesus is the eternal Father, what he is saying is that when we look at Jesus, we can see the, the exact expression of the Father in Jesus. He has the same attributes of, of fatherliness. So let's take a few moments the rest of our time this morning and look at a couple different attributes of what it means that God is our Father. And the first one, I know this is why you come here. You come for these, these deep theological statements. Uh, the first point is uh, a father loves his children right? Uh, fathers love his children. I do have a confession to make. Um, I love my kids more than I love your kids. Uh, I know that's, 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 that's very rough. You probably know what I'm talking about where you, you love your own children and you, you delight in them. And yeah, the other kids are all fine and great, but there's something special about your very own kids. They, they, they carry your name. Uh, in fact, I was, uh, I was thinking about this. Uh, whenever, whenever we found out that we were gonna have a baby, uh, we, we of course start thinking about names and we didn't know if we we're gonna have a boy or a girl. We, we didn't really find out that, that information. So we had to come up with a good name for each. And, uh, and Lindsay's like, so Stephen, I, I just want you to know, like I'm naming our kids. And I'm like, well, well that, doesn't sound fair like you're naming our kids and and she's like well I'll I'll take your opinions into consideration <laughs> but but I have this like double veto power you know and I'm like well, I don't know if that sounds fair and she's like well think of it this way like you have named all of our kids already every kid we have is going to be named Watson it's only fair that, that I get to, get to have one of the names in there. Uh, but but we, we delight and we love our own children. One's children is, is beloved by their parents. And when we look at Isaiah chapter 9, if the mighty God is all about God's holiness, his morality, his judgment, none of us would stand a chance, would we? We would all be condemned. But at the same time, this holy, righteous, moral God who brings judgment to the world is also an eternal father. Whenever you get a chance, read the rest of Psalm 103 that we use for our call to worship and for our confession and our assurance of pardon. It has a verse in there. It's like, as a father has compassion on his children, so God has compassion on us. God is a compassionate father to his children. But we also have to ask, how are we children of God? What's the nature of how people become children of God? And, and I think over the centuries, uh, people have become confused on how people become a part of God's people. Some people look at this idea of, of land and boundaries and say, well, uh, you have this kingdom of Israel, this kingdom of Judah. 
you have this King David on a throne and they had very distinct borders. And Isaiah chapter 9 says that this coming king is going to expand the borders. So being a child of God, some people would say, has to be somehow related to this particular plot of earth. But we also have to remember Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. What land did they have? What borders did they have? They did not have land, but they just had a promise from God that they believed in. Being a child of God is not connected to any piece of land, but it's also not connected to, to lineage either. For a long time, especially in Jesus' day, people said, well, I am a child of God because I am a child of Abraham. And since Abraham is in my lineage, is in my family tree, therefore I'm a child of God. But do you remember what John the Baptist said to these people who were saying, I have Abraham as my father? This is what John the Baptist said. He said, and don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children from Abraham from these stones. Being a child of God is not connected to land. Being a child of God is not connected to lineage. It's not connected to language, to ethnicity. But rather, being a child of God is more about calling. And it's more about God choosing us to be his children. That we are adopted into the family of God. Scripture paints this dichotomy, and I don't think we like dichotomies, but Scripture paints this dichotomy where every human being on earth is a child. We are either a child of wrath or we're a child of God. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. He says, And you, speaking to the children of God, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler and the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and our thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, he made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. And he also has raised us up with him and has seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Do you see what he paints a picture of? He said, we all used to be in the darkness. The darkness described in Isaiah chapter 9. We were all in that hopeless darkness with no hope. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead. We become the children of God when we put our faith and hope in Jesus Christ. 
and he moves us from this kingdom of darkness where we are by nature children of wrath and he moves us to this kingdom of life where we are sons and daughters of the most high. Listen to what the apostle John said in John chapter one. He says, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but were born of God. We become children of God when we have faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we believe that he died for our sins and he has placed his righteousness upon us so that when the Father looks at us, we are not children of wrath, but rather we have new life and righteousness in Jesus. That's how we are children of God. We live in a world where people are looking for connection. And we look for connection all over the place, don't we? We look for connection. I mean, if you're old, you look for it on Facebook, right? Uh, if you're young, I don't know what you look at for it on because I'm not young anymore. But we have these social media outlets where we go and we try to look for connections. We try to find our people. We try to find our tribe. We want to know, be known and love and accept it and have the attention for, for our ideals and our positions. And we will chase after anything to be a part of something greater than ourselves. But here's the problem. All those other ways to be connected and to have identity and to have a people, and they, they can't really deliver what they're promising. What they do deliver is heartache and destruction. You say this, the only identity, the only tribe that really matters is to be a part of the family of God. To find your identity, to find your purpose, to find your hope in the King. We are not independent individuals where we get to form and build who we want to be. Rather, we have to see and understand and define ourselves in relationship to Christ. My, my question for you today is simple. Whose child are you? Are you still a child who by nature is under wrath, living in darkness without hope, searching for any potential light out there to give meaning to life? Or are you a child of God who's been given life, who's been given meaning, who's been given purpose? The invitation that Christ makes to you today is to be my child, is to be a son or a daughter of God. This child in Isaiah 9, I love it. 
this child in Isaiah 9, he's expanding the nation. And when it says he's expanding the nation, it's not just land that he's referring to, but he's expanding the peoples. It's not people who have the bloodline of Abraham, but it's people who call on Christ. And that people is going to be very eclectic. It's going to be diverse in age from young to old, diverse in, in their economy, from, from poor to rich, diverse in race, diverse in intellect, diverse in every way you can imagine. The king, Jesus, is, is throwing open the doors to the kingdom and he's saying, come, come you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I, I will give you life. Have you accepted the king's invitation to become his son or daughter? Another thing we see about the father and the eternal father is that a father gives his values. A father gives his values. When you think about your father, your earthly father, what values did he impart to you? Whether you had an amazing father, an absent father, an abusive father, your father taught you something. Because one of the aspects about being a father is you pass on values to your children. They communicate it in how they act and how they speak. I think about growing up with my father. I, gotta, I can only say so much because he's in the room today. Don't, don't, don't want him to get a big head, right? But I had, a, I had and have a great father who passed on values to the sons that he raised. And as I was thinking about this point this week, I thought, well, what, what values did my father pass along? And I think he passed on along the value of faith. And he did that because he and my mother created an atmosphere in their house where God and Christ Jesus were important. It was a home where we prayed. It was a home where my dad, who led the music for church, and my mom, who was a church pianist, uh, there was always a hymn on the piano or being whistled by my dad. Um, at night, when my brothers and I would climb into bed, we all shared a room. If you share a room with one sibling, you think you have it rough. I shared a room with two older siblings. I kept having this feeling that one day they would like graduate and move off and I'd have my own room, but they never left. <laughs> never had my own room. Still bitter, you know, as I'm just saying. But we would, we, would, we would crawl into our beds at night and, and he would read the word of God to us. I don't think we missed church. And guys, church was different back then. It was Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday evening. And we might have revival where it was like all day for a week. And then, you know, it, there, it was a lot, but we didn't miss. And one of the things that they communicated to their boys is that Christ is our king. And even to this day, all three of their children have a faith in Jesus. He communicated those values and he passed them on. 
He communicated a value for family, that family was important and that you love your family dearly and you defend them, you provide for them. He passed on this, this value, I think, of work. That work is a good thing that can be delighted in rather than in something that's a means to an end or something that's to be avoided. Even to this day, uh, I, was, I was with my kids uh, in, the, in the front yard yesterday. Uh, I have a neighbor who's like, man, I got leaves all over my yard, but she said it in a way, it's like, hey, you wanna rake my leaves? And so I'm like, yeah, I got kids, sure, go over there and rake some leaves, kids. Um, and, uh, and there became a conflict and they came over and I'm like, what's going on? Like, what, why the conflict? And it's like, well, one rake's broken and it's just the head, but no handle and this is this. I'm like, listen, we're gonna go over there and we're gonna work like Watsons, right? We're, we're gonna work and we're gonna, I don't care if all you have is a head, like you can get on your knees and like rake up those leaves into the bag, but we're gonna get it done. And why, like, where did that come from? Well, it wasn't from me, but it was from my father. And that was a, that was a value that their, my father's father passed on to him and his father's father passed on him. We, we, we have this, this idea that fathers give their values to their children. And when God is our father, one of the things that we do is we begin to adopt the values of our heavenly father. And the great thing about scripture is scripture, whenever it gives us a command, is before it gives us the command, it gives us the why. You ever have a kid, a grandkid, or maybe you yourself, uh, you, you tell them to do something and the first question is, why? 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 Well, scripture is like, God was like, I got this covered. I'm just going to give you the why before I tell you the what. And so it always tells us the why first. It gives us the facts before it gives us the commands. Let, let me give you an example of what I mean by this. Let's consider the value of the Father's mission. That the Father has a mission and he is passing on that mission to his sons and daughters. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Notice he lays out the facts to begin with. You are chosen, a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're my people. This is who you are. You sons and daughters of God, you're mine. And because you're mine, I'm passing something on to you. What is he passing on? He's passing on the mission so that we can proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Because we are sons and daughters of God, we have adopted the mission of our Father to bring light into darkness. It's one of the reasons we, as a church, we have this value called the square, where the square is this idea that the people aren't going to be coming to us who need Christ as Savior. They're already out there in the world. They're not thinking about Christ. They're not thinking about salvation. They're in darkness, and they don't even know they're in darkness oftentimes. So if we want to take light to them, we can't take light to them holed up in these four walls. But we have to take light to them. The reason we do carols at the creek out the park and not in here is so that we can go to them. We could do that exact same program that we do across the street. We could do it in here. And you know what we'd have? Heat. 
be so much more comfortable. I can string some twinkly lights along the roof in here. It's no problem. We could do what we do out there. We could do it over here. But why do we do it over there? We do it over there because that's where our community is. We, as God's people, we take on his values of the mission, taking light to the world. When you show up tonight at Carol's at the Creek, you're not just showing up to drink your hot cocoa and to enjoy some Christmas cheer. When you show up tonight, you're showing up on mission. And your eyes are going to be open to the people in our community. And you're like, man, I don't think I recognize that person from church. And what are you going to do? You're going to go up to them and you're going to introduce yourself. And they very well might say, well, I go to the first service. Um, <laughs> and if that's the case, man, you just met a brother or sister in Christ, praise God. But it very well might be that they're living in darkness and they don't know they're in darkness. And you can show them where to get the cookies and the coffee and you can share them, oh, this is my recipe for the cookie. Hope you enjoyed it. You can invite them to church because we've had people come to this event in darkness and hopelessness and we didn't see them again for eight or nine months. But then they show up on the doorstep to our church looking for help and somewhere in their mind, they're like, I guess I go to church for help. And the only church I know is a church that was out there singing Christmas carols. When we go out, we have our eyes open for the mission. When you go out to work, your eyes are open for the mission of God. When you come home from work or you wake up with the kids and you get them going, your mind is on the mission of God. We communicate the gospel and the hope we have. Think of it this way. like When, when we think about how the world tries to constrict when we can share the gospel. Have you, have you ever go to like a Thanksgiving or a family Christmas and you kind of hear the, the, the adage of like, well, you don't talk about faith and you don't talk about politics at family get-togethers. You've heard that? All right, so we're not supposed to talk about the faith with family. But then you go to work and at your work they say, oh, this isn't really the place where we share the gospel because it might be offensive and you don't know where other people are. And so we don't share the gospel here either. We don't talk about the faith here. So let's, let's think about this. If you remove family and you remove work, how are people supposed to hear the gospel? Because you're over there thinking, well, I can't share the gospel with my family. Maybe someone at work will share the gospel with them. But they can't do that at work. We have this value, the mission of God, where he has given us this, this, this desire, this, this drive to let people know about Jesus. And so we communicate the kingdom of God that they too can become sons and daughters of God. We have another value of holiness Book of First Peter chapter 1, this is what the Apostle Peter writes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You see how he kind of built up the facts. You are given new birth. You have an inheritance. Then in verse 14, 
As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all of your conduct. For it is written, be holy, for I am holy. If your father, your heavenly father who has redeemed you and has saved you and has given you new life is passing on his values to you, one of the values that we ought to have as believers is this value for holiness, that we want to walk in righteousness. We have on us, when we stand before the Father, the perfect righteousness of Christ. And our desires, as much as we can, is that our actual actions will look more and more like the righteousness of Christ that is put on us. That's what we want. And so what does he tell us to do in Peter to get there? He says, well, don't conform with the desires you had of your flesh. Later on in chapter two, he puts it this way. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against your soul. So notice he's not just telling us not to sin, not to cross the line. He is saying we need to work on our desires that draw us up to the line of sin. That's what we need to work on. Oftentimes when we talk about it in, in counseling or in, in application, we'll talk about how we need to do this, um, this extreme amputation. Extreme amputation. Do you recall when Jesus said, um, if your right hand causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Gouge it out. And he's not saying that we do this actually. There wouldn't be a whole lot of fist bumps going around Christ Community <laughs> Church. But what is he saying? We need to radically attack sin. We need to radically amputate that which causes us to fall into sin. Let me give like a bottom shelf example that, that this is an easy example, but it's like the issue of pornography. When you talk with many people who are addicted to pornography, you know what they say? The only place I look at it is on my phone. It's not on the TV screen. It's not on a computer screen. Uh, it's not in the magazine. It's, it's on a smartphone. Why don't we radically amputate that phone? You know, I lived for 23 years without a cell phone. It was glorious. I lived for 30 years without a, without a smartphone. It's because it didn't exist. The decision was easy. It's like, just not going to have it. But for centuries, millennia, human beings have known how to live without these devices. We can live without them. If we want to adopt the value of our Father for holiness, why not radically amputate the things that lead us into sin? And we can always come up with reasons of why we can't do it, right? Well, I got work. I need my phone for work. You know, if your, phone, if your job really wants you to have a smartphone for work, you know what they'll do? They will hand you a smartphone. 
and they'll assign one to you. And you know what you're not going to probably do? Is look at pornography on a phone that someone issued you because they have full access to it. When I say, well, this is just how I connect with old friends from high school. It's like, really? Like, you don't even go to your reunion. You don't talk with them any other time that you're, you're going to be all right not knowing where they are, what they're doing. What's more important is that we reflect the value of our Father in heaven and that we are holy. What are the sins in your life and how can you begin to radically amputate them so that you can look like your Father in heaven? We'll do one more final value. We'll do this one quick. It's a long craft in elementary class today, so we got, we got a little bit of time. Value of his love. First John. Thanks, Kelly. <laughs> she, she designed the craft today. First John chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God has sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists of this, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, there are the facts. There's the why. Now, what are we supposed to do with those facts? He tells us, dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. If we are to reflect the values of our Father, we have to love the things that he loves. And you know what the Father loves? The Father loves his children. Not all loves are equal, are they? I said earlier, I love my kids more than I love your kids. And I don't think anyone was that offended because they're like, well, that's right, that's good. I tell my kids, I love your mom more than I love you. And they're like, what? And I'm like, you're leaving one day. Like, you're gonna, you're gonna like put me in a nursing home, but the one that's gonna be with me to the end is my wife. I have a covenant with her. We are called to love the entire world. We are called we are called to love the world because the world is our neighbor. But we have an even greater responsibility to love what God loves. We have an even greater responsibility. We have an even greater love for those who are in the household of faith. The Apostle Paul talks about this when he talks about giving out benevolence and he describes a situation where, where if you have a believer and an unbeliever and the, they both have needs, you know who you help? You help the believer. We take care of our own and then out of the overflow, we help others as well. But we take care of family business first. We are called to love one another with the very same love with which God has loved us with. That's why we have this value of the table as a church where we say it is so important to be known because it's hard to love other people if you don't know other people. 
It's hard to be loved by others if others don't know you. That's why we strive to know names. That's why we strive to invite. That's why we strive to, to be in community with each other. Why? It's not because it's good growth strategy. It's not because it's just a, a nice thing. The reason we do it is because we're trying to reflect the value of our Father, to love the household of faith. Are we reflecting the value of the Father and how we come to church? Are we reflecting the value of the Father and making a meal for someone who just had a baby and making a meal for someone who just got out of a hospital? Are we reflecting the Father by helping somebody out with a bill when the funds were short that week and, and the bills are looming? Are we helping one another out by having a long conversation with somebody even when we're really tired or when we have somewhere else to be? Brothers and sisters, let us reflect the values of our Father and let us love one another. When we look at Isaiah chapter 9, he paints this picture of the kingdom of God growing and expanding and increasing in joy and increasing in peace. Why is this kingdom looking this way? It's not just because the work the king has done to defeat the enemies, but it's because the people of his kingdom are reflecting the values of the king. So let's reflect the king together. Let's stand and pray.